In other news, uh, Nathan, you sent us a lovely gift, set of gifts. One of them uh, was a, a mini desktop vacuum in case we, quote, crumb our pants, uh, which I did just a little bit. I did but not. This requires double hmm. A batteries, so I can't test it out. Mm. I'm also not entirely so, sure how it's supposed to work, but uh, there you go. Does it suction from the bottom? It is, and it's 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 not very suctiony. I was gonna say that doesn't so, sound like it has a lot of great. suction power. Sorry, I'm not, I'm not buying you guys Dyson portable vacuums. Sorry, but it will pick up but stuff. If you, though, want to support us up. buying Dyson vacuums, you can do that <laughs> at Buy Me a Coffee. <laughs> You're listening to The John Chi Show, hosted by three Korean-American adoptees diving headfirst into what it means to be adopted, Korean, American, and more. And now, here's your hosts, Nathan, Patrick, and KJ. Hello, friends, adoptees and non-adoptees alike. It is I, KJ, as you can probably tell from this weird energy that I'm giving. Uh, It is just me for right now because we're still having a hard time getting our lives together and getting scheduled, but uh, we're all here for a fantastic interview with friend Lynn Connor to talk about how finding yourself and going on that journey of self-discovery can feel really important. And then when a tough life situation happens, if you lose a loved one, it can all feel suddenly so meaningless in the grand scheme of things. And it was just a really wonderful interview to have with her, uh, to hear her vulnerability and to really consider uh, the important things in life. So we can't wait to share this episode with you. Uh, Happy belated Tusok for those who are participated or who thought about it if you didn't think about it that's totally okay too i think we forgot last year or something but uh yeah anyways on with the episode hello everybody welcome back to the john c show interview portion uh i have stolen those dialogues from nathan who i literally can't get it out of my head now that he says that um we're thrilled to have on our show today lynn connor lynn thank you so much for coming on to the show how are you i'm good i'm very good <laughs> that's awesome um where are you calling in from i'm from uh brooklyn new york Fort nice. Green, to be specific. Uh, all right. For those... No one knows. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, For I barely know. Don't know. I don't know. It's just knows. in Brooklyn. Yeah. It's, just, <laughs> it's fine. That's fine. I say I'm from Dallas, and if somebody else says they're from Dallas, I'm like, but what part of Dallas? But uh, outside of that, no one cares. So yeah. it's all good. Um, well, hey, we're, we're thrilled to have you on the show. We would love for you to kick off this interview uh, by telling us your story in as much or as little detail as you would like. Okay. Well, I was adopted um, from South Korea and um, I arrived from South Korea to the flown into the Philly airport um, December 1979. And I was adopted by a single white, non-practicing Catholic Irish uh, mom. Um, She never married. There were no siblings. It was just us. Um, so I grew up in um, a suburb of Trenton, New Jersey. No one's heard of it. It's it's Ewing Township, but it's um, the, they'll claim the fame as Princeton University. And then 
the College of New Jersey because we were, you know, close to colleges. But um, so I I grew up basically in the very white uh, suburb of New Jersey, so it's Central Jersey, and um, I didn't. I really I feel like I didn't have any problems until I hit seventh grade. Like all of my elementary school was this beautiful blur of like friends and I was popular and I had um, it, I lived on a street with a lot of kids my age and we all it just was a really colorblind idyllic period. Yeah. And then um, and I went before I went into seventh grade, I went to whole camp um, so I was 11 the first time in Johnsonburg, New Jersey. And I, I did it because my mom was a part of, um, well, she was a librarian. So she was a New Jersey state librarian, which is, means it's a government job. And it's not like a school librarian where you, you she didn't like children, actually. So she just, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, so it was government. And um she was a part of, um, before she adopted me, she, she, I think she was, there were a lot of librarians adopted children. I don't know. It was just this weird, like she had a lot of people who, um, she worked with who adopted from Korea, from Vietnam, from, um, mostly Korea and Vietnam, I think. Um, and so she was like, okay, that sounds good. And, uh, so she was part of, and she was single. So she was a part of this organization for single adopted parents. And so we would go to these dinners and events, you know, sometimes, but, um, she had a very good friend who was, uh, adoptive, single adoptive mom and adopted from three kids from Korea who are all biologically related. So I, I kind of grew up with them. Like they, I felt like they were my cousins. Like it just, it was a very normalized, like everyone has a single mom with no dad and, you know, we're adopted. It's, it wasn't anything new. So they went to camp. So my mom was like, go to camp. So I went, <laughs> it was horrible. It was like, I, that's another crazy story. But, um, and, and I also had a, a Oh, so then, so that was camp. And then I went into seventh grade and that was when all the elementary schools dumped all the kids into junior high. So it was five elementary schools and my elementary school was like, I, like I said, idyllic, like everyone was friends. There was no weird, like mean girl shit. Like it just was very like great. And then I hit seventh grade and then it was just like all these different groups. Suddenly it was, you know, it's, I, I don't know what year it was, 1989. Um, and it was the first like labels, like what you, what kind of jeans you wore became important. Popular girls, the cheerleaders came out. Everyone was blonde. Like I, like my, I was just like exposed to this like totally different world. And I, um, I had a boy who I, in, I've written about him so many times in my, in my essays and my memoir. And so his fictional name is Eddie Peroni. That's not his real name. <laughs> he, he was my, he was my bully. And he basically, um, I don't know. He picked on me and actually another Korean adoptee who I was friends with. Um, and he would just, he would scream China, China, China in the hallways, you know, like we changing classes, he'd scream it. 
I had gym class with him. He would scream it. And, you know, like in my face, because somehow it always lined up like I was very in proximity to him. So that went on for almost my whole junior high from seventh to ninth grade. But it was really, really bad in seventh grade. And it was to the point it was like it was every single day that he was in my face. And I I didn't know, you know, how to deal with it. I was just like, I don't know what's happening. Um, I still can cry about it. <laughs> and I had, um, I feel like I told everyone, like it wasn't, there was, it wasn't a see. everyone could hear it. You know, it was just like, there was no, no one defended me. No one was like, that's fucked up. You know, <laughs> there was nothing, there was it just was back then. There was nothing, there was no like bullying campaigns, anti-bullying, anti, you know, it just was like, um, normal. It's just what it was. And I, my, my junior high and then high school, um, there were, I, I could count it on my hand, how many Asians. And there was a Korean adoptee, like who was my friend and she had actually gone to whole camp. And I went up to her and I was like, oh, didn't you go to a whole camp? And she was just sort of like, yeah, I don't remember you. Like we became <laughs> friends, but she was very strong. Like there was just something about her. Like she just, she didn't take it. And so, and she was only there for seventh grade. Then she transferred to a, a private high school. Um, but, and so he, I just felt like he, he pinpointed me and I was the target of that. And so now, I mean, like, you know, years later, it's just that the word China is so trauma, like traumatizing yeah. and triggering. Mm -hmm. And, um, I mean, the whole, like, when the Trump thing was going on, like, I was, I was, like, having breakdowns, and it just was really hard. Um, I, I don't know why I'm crying. <laughs> I was like, oh, you know, it'd be funny if I cried. Now I'm doing this, I'm just like, really? I, I always do. I'm like, really, Lynn? Because I'm... I, <laughs> I've told this, I've talked about this so much, so this isn't new. So now it's just the, the word, I mean, it's, I, I learned from going to therapy that I have internalized racism mm -hmm. and I actually wasn't sure I wanted to talk about this because, um, I mean, I'm still in it. Like, it's just this whole ironic thing of, um, so my husband's Chinese American, his parents came over, um, in the seventies, um, they speak Cantonese, prefer, like that's their preferred language. Um, and there's a, it's, a whole, it's a whole long story that I don't want to get too tangled into. But the, the, inter, like, the internalized racism came, comes up every visit. Like it's just very triggering. And it's very, um, I mean, maybe this is, maybe I will go here because this is sort of a, what I'm sort of grappling with my memoir about. Um, so, okay, so let's, I'll back up. <laughs> so I was in idyllic New Jersey and then I had the bully Eddie and then, um, you know, high school was very, like, I just wanted to be invisible and I just tried to not be noticed. Cause I was just like, I, I went through the whole Eddie thing and I was like, I, I just don't want anyone to see me. Like maybe yeah. that's the answer. <laughs> um, 
So I was very quiet and I was, I mean, I had two best friends and we just stayed, we were fine. Like as far, as long as I had my friends, I was fine. Um, went to college um, at the University of North Carolina in Asheville. And so I'm from New, I grew literally grew up in New Jersey, didn't move anywhere. And I went um, to North Carolina and I, my mom wanted, my mom was a planner. So she was like, I, I want to retire and I want it cheap. And um, so just go down South. And so she loved North Carolina. She loved all the Southern States. And so, um, I went there thinking, okay, it can't be bad. Like it sounds exciting. And from New Jersey, it sounds so exciting. Like North Carolina, it was Asheville, which is actually a really gorgeous city. I, I would recommend it's similar to Brooklyn. I hear, but, um, they have mountains, <laughs> well, Blue Ridge mountains, really not, not at all. Actually, it's nothing yeah. like Brooklyn. <laughs> I don't know why <laughs> it's like this hidden gem of a city that everyone's like, it's, it's amazing. Brooklyn of North Carolina. Yeah. <laughs> but it's very racist. It was very like in your face racist. Um, mm. and so I was like, well, this is not my home. So I, I was like two, two years is good. I want to transfer out. Um, and I was like, I just want to be with Asians because I was going, I was sort of going through this, like, um, yeah, I'm done with this. Like I'm done with being in just white spaces and mm-hmm. like being the only, literally the only other Asians on campus were the international club kids. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, S- uh, not like we look alike and I appreciate that. So thank you. But you're from Japan. Like my best friend was from Japan, and I was just like, it just, it's just—it's not, not the, the same. same. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I, um, I was like, well, I want to. I wasn't ready for California. California seemed scary. Uh, so I was like, well, I got to go to New York. I mean, I don't know. That's where they are, the Asians. So I transferred to NYU, and I, um, I, I don't even know how I got in. I got into the film school. I have no idea how because I have had no background. <laughs> like, I did it on a whim and I, I didn't, I didn't even want to make films. Like I literally was like, I love soap operas. And so I want to write, I think for soap operas, like mm. I wanted to be a writer, but I was like, you know, I guess I should make it like realistic. Like I didn't think just being a writer, like novelist or memoir, I didn't know about memoir at the time, but, um, so I was like, yeah, I'll just go to NYU and write for, for uh, TV and I went and I took like a TV, like whatever script writing one-on-one class. And I hated it because it was so collaborative. It was like every dialogue, every <laughs> line of dialogue was like, well, what do you think? Well, what do you think? And I'm just like, Oh my God, this is horrible. Like, I don't fucking care <laughs> yeah. what everyone thinks. Like, I just want to write my story. And it was um, in uh, the nineties, late nineties. So it was so male heavy, male boy heavy. Um, and everyone was into, you know, the Godfather and Jaws and, you know, I was just like, (laughs) you're like, what about anything else? I was like, well, my favorite movie is when Harry met Sally, (laughs) but I can't really say that because no one, like everyone thought romantic comedies was a joke. But I was like, oh, but like, you know, gangster films, that's quality film. Like that's high art too. Okay. But um, <laughs> anyway, I, I, I graduated from NYU and I, um, I fell in love with editing actually. I thought mm. 
that was really cool. And I, I didn't know, I mean, the whole thing, it's all storytelling. So I didn't know I was just trying to, um, kind of tell my story, but I also was, you know, my early twenties and I was too afraid to talk about my Korean adoption and really go into it. So my final thesis film was actually on my best friend at the time. Uh, she was Pakistani Muslim and she was like, I mean, we went to high school together. So I was really fascinated with her drama as far as like she could only marry, a, you know, Pakistani Muslim boy. And like there were a lot of rules. And I was like, that's so interesting. And I'm like, my Korean adoption story is so boring. Like who fucking care? Like I just was like, I don't, I don't, cause I didn't, like I had, I love my mother. My mother loved me. Like there was no abuse. I mean, now looking back now I am a mom and I'm like, there was a lot of abuse, <laughs> like emotional abuse. There was, you know, there was just a lot of different, um, like gaslighting and like more, um, I, I, I think like silencing, um, as far as abuse, but there wasn't physical abuse. There wasn't sexual abuse. There wasn't any of those like big, big T, what they call it, big T traumas. Mm -hmm. So right. I, um, I was like, I don't, I don't have anything to say. I don't really know what to talk about. Cause it's not interesting. I don't, you know, it's, it just seems like boring, whatever. I didn't ever want to search. I was, I was just one. I felt like I was one of those weird Korean adoptees who had no interest in a birth search. Um, I went to, um, I went on the Holt motherland tour in, mm. in 2001. And that's when the whole, um, I, I went the summer of 2001. So it was literally right before nine 11. And, um, I was living in, I was living in Queen in New York, Queens. Um, and I just went on this, this trip and I, I was, I actually, remember when I was at Holt camp twice because that friend who we actually aren't friends anymore, but, um, she convinced me to go to Holt camp when I was 14. And so, and it was horror again, it was horrible. And that's another story, but, um, she, we were friends throughout. And then she had always wanted to search for her birth mother. she had always wanted to go on the Holt motherland tour back to Korea. And I was just like this, this camp is fucked up. Of course, I didn't curse back then. I was very, I was a good girl. So I was just like, this camp is messed up, right? <laughs> um, and I, but I couldn't figure out why. And then I was like, so I am not going on that tour. Like that is crazy. Like absolutely not. And then, you know, as I've heard on your episodes, like you just change your mind. Suddenly I was like 23 and I was like, I don't know why, but I want to go to Korea. I don't, <laughs> I've never had that desire, but suddenly I changed my mind and I want to go. And so I, we, we, we were still friends. So we, we, I remember we went to TGI Fridays and we had a whole dinner, like, and I was like, I want to, I'm applying to this tour. And she got very like, you never wanted to go. And I was like, I know, isn't that crazy? I changed my mind. And then she was just like, no, you can't go. Cause I'm applying. I want to go this summer. So she's like, you wait, I'm going to go. And I was like, oh, I didn't know, like, yeah, you own like, Korea. What? I was like, I, I thought we were friends, but apparently, and she was like, you remember when we were, when we went to camp and you were very clingy? And I was like, when we were 14? 
because we were 22 at the time or 23. Mm. And I was like, oh, so 10 years ago, you're remembering how I was insecure and like, I hate, I had a very bad experience the first time and you dragged me to the camp. That's when I was clingy and you felt that was, you know, a problem because she had a boyfriend and I didn't. And I was like, hmm. So uh, it was a weird, crazy thing. Like we, so we went, we both got accepted into the same tour. We both went and we acted like we didn't know each other and we knew each other since we were in seventh grade. So I was just like, it's really sad because it's yeah. like yeah. we grew up together and i have to like i don't know what you're i didn't understand we never talked about it we i never understood what her like possessiveness was about it like i would you know ruin her experience because it was our first time both for both of us anyway i just and it was fine because we both had became friends good friends with different people and so it was almost like we were on the same tour. We had pictures together, but we were not friends on this mm. trip. And so it was sad. And then, <laughs> I mean, we, we had the homestay together. We got p paired up. <laughs> and again, I was just like, it's so uncomfortable because they don't understand. Like, we know each other. And she totally like, didn't talk to me the whole time on this thing. And it was like, it, it would have been nice if we could have shared it together, but we couldn't. So anyway, she, she had, she, she had her thing going on and, um, but it was that tour, um, it was 25 of us and, uh, I was 24 at the time and it was eight, the age range from 18 to like 60. I think the oldest person was 60 and 20 of them were women and five guys and all five guys were 18 and, so I was like, yeah, I'm not here for any of that <laughs> love stuff or like falling in. Like, no, no, no. I'm here for closure because I, I when I was 23, I thought I graduated from college. This is ridiculous. Like, like, can we focus here? Like we're in Korea. Let's focus, you know, people, <laughs> children. And I was uh, <laughs> I was because um, I was a film major and I was also really actually I had a lot of um, social anxiety that I didn't know. I was very shy. Like I felt shy. Like I just felt awkward in groups. And so I learned from film school, you just interview people. And so I had, my mom got me a VHSC camera and I, I basically told the whole tour, I'm doing interviews. I'm going to film this whole thing. And, you know, I'm, I work at a post-production company I'll edit it. I'll edit it together on my weekends and I'll send everyone a copy and everyone's like, okay. So I, I, in my head, I was like, I'm just making a documentary cause I don't want to forget it. And I, I, I mean, looking back, I, it was a total like shield. Like it was a, you know, cause when you're filming, you're just sort of like, you're not, you're not in the moment. You're just always thinking of the, the next moment to make Behind sure you got the, the right moment. Yeah. So I just was, um, and I, I, I think I did it. It was like a weird instinctual survival thing that I did. Um, so I do have video of it. So, um, and I did edit it. And then through that whole process, we came back from the trip and I was just like, um, what, what was that? Like, that was fucking crazy. Like, what was that? 
And I'm like going through all the footage and I started talking to my ex and he was the photographer of the trip. And I, I noticed him. He was like out of the five guys, he was the cutest and he was tall and he was athletic and he was very charismatic and like all, everyone had a crush on him. So I was just like, I'm good because you I don't go for the the popular easy guys, you know, like I I like the nerdy feminine guys. So I, um, I, I was like, I'm safe. Like I, there is no way in hell that I will fall for you. And, um, we were aiming cause it was back AOL days. And, um, cause I was like, I need your photos and I'm like, I'm bit, <laughs> I need your permission. So we were, we were kind of like the media team of the tour. And we, I mean, he, he was taking photographs the whole time and I, he, I was obviously videoing. So we, we were aware of each other. And then it was like, once I was serious and I was editing and he was like, no, I'm, I, I want to help. Like I'm totally whatever you need. And so we just started chatting and it, we like, we just, um, we're friends. I mean, we were just friends throughout this whole thing. And we really kind of processed the, the tour and going back for the first time together. I mean, it was really, it was like the, free therapy between us. And, um, and then I was like, uh Oh, I think I, I think I'm falling for him. <laughs> and he had a girlfriend in high school. She was like a sophomore in high school. Cause he was 18. And I, you know, I was just like, this is ridiculous. Like, this is so ridiculous. And I, um, yeah, so it was a whole, I don't know. I don't know if it was, I'm sure it was because we went on this trip together and, you know, and so this, I, I, I don't want to give it all away because it's, I'm, I'm planning to write an essay about this and it will come out, but, um, it was, yeah, it was a whole drama. Um, yeah. So. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story. Um, I, I want to jump back because I'm, so I'm reading some things in your, your form, which I know you filled out a while ago. Uh, and some things you talked about, some things you didn't. Um, but one of the things that I was interested about specifically in your story is, um, so you, you wrote, um, trying to figure out in your, in your twenties and thirties when you were in your, like everything Korea phase, I guess, uh, trying to figure out why I was so lost on identity when I had a quote unquote good adoption, right? Like generally free from any, like you said, big T traumas. As you've had time to reflect on that, what what was it that you were like if you could put some words to it, what was it that you were searching for in that period beyond just like I just need less things and from a white perspective? Well, I I think I definitely like after the whole Eddie thing I I was in a I would call it my self-hate phase so I was I mean all through high school even in college I was I I hated myself I was just very like I'm ugly I'm a alien I'm like no one will ever love me um I'm foreign like I just can't um get away from my face and so when I and I think going on going to Korea and going through all that and then with my ex. And then once that ended, I was like, I'm, I'm done. Like I am done this like bullshit. Let me find a boy 
to validate me and to um, prove to me that I can be lovable. I'm like, I'm going to figure out what that means on my own. And so Mm -hmm. I did a whole, you know, you know, I'm going to love myself, whatever. Oprah keeps talking about this love. I'm going to find that. And and so (laughs) I, I thought the way to do that was to like one, figure out what does it mean to be Korean American? And Mm -hmm. then what does it mean to be a Korean adoptee and American? And or, and then I was like, well, maybe I'm not that. And so I just kept searching. Like I was searching for that label to just be like, this is it. And now I love myself. And mm. um, so, I mean, that's part of going to San Francisco and going for the, working for the film festival. I was really searching and I was just sort of like, is it in Asian America? Like this whole whatever, this this, this like huge label of, you know, people who look like me, but we don't all, we have so many different backgrounds and experiences that you can't, it's not like Korean American where it's so like, it's so narrow. It's like, it's almost, it felt, I thought it was inclusive, like all inclusive in a way. And um, so I, I was really, I, I mean, I thought that was that was just it. I was just searching for kind of this piece of feeling good about myself, and then my I found out. Um, so in two thousand, my mom had retired to Florida. So she, you know, she sold the house. She was she's in Florida. She's having the time of her life in this retirement community. And um, I was visiting her. It was like the summer of two thousand and four, and she couldn't lay down in bed like she was sitting up in her recliner in the living room from back pain and I was just like figure it out (laughs) go to the doctor what the hell you know I was just like I don't what I mean months she was months in this chair and I was just Mm. like what is going on like just just go to I'm I I was visiting you know the festival zone like doesn't work in the summer so I, I was there almost all summer and I was like let's go to the back specialist, go, let's figure this out. And then she just kept saying like, yeah, they can't help me. And, um, and then I, I was there and I, there was something, I heard her on the phone and there was something in her voice and I was like, she's lying to me and I don't know what it is, but she's lying. So I just, I went to her and I was like, mom, what are you not telling me? And she was like, okay, fine. I have cancer. And I was like, what? (laughs) What? And she was like, yeah, yeah, the doctor can't help me because the cancer's returned. And I was like, returned? When did, when did it, arit- like, what? <laughs> when I was just, the first time? Uh, yeah, yeah, so I was, she's like, oh, it was in 2001 um, between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Wow. And she's like, I didn't want to tell you because it wasn't a big deal. I had a lumpectomy. Like, it wasn't a big deal. And it just, like, you know, I, I didn't need chemo. I didn't need anything. So it was just like it wasn't a big deal. And I just was like, no, that's a lie. <laughs> it's, not, it's not about a big deal. It's all you lied. And now you're lying again. And so the, basically she, the cancer had come back. It was in her lungs. It was like in her back. It's fine. It was everywhere. And, um, I just was like, what the fuck? Like, I just was so, I was like, it just stopped everything. Like I really, I got very like, I mean, I was at, at, by this point I had done the whole, you know, I'd gone to Korea. I'd lived in San Francisco. I was, um, 
I was very involved in the uh, Korean adoption community in and was it was I I think I was co-president like it just I was really heavy in and I had all these events lined up I was I was going to go to con that for the first time back then and I just was like I who cares like I just got very like who cares yeah <laughs> what I call myself you know like I don't know what my mom is dying and I'm running around trying to like find this label that is like a perfect dress. And I was like, it's who cares? And so she, you know, she went through, it was nine months later, she died. And um I had I was the only child and you know, no father. And so I was I was 28 at this time. Um and I just I I became an adult in a way that I never wanted to be, you know, like, I mean, in your twenties, you're like, I'm an adult. Right. But then I was, <laughs> I mean, cause I can drink and I can do all this stuff. And then you, something like you, you, I was dealing with like her health insurance. I had to sell her house. I had to sell her car. Her car wasn't like her title. I mean, I, I didn't drive cause I lived in New York most in San Francisco. So I, there's a car title apparently that you have to transfer. <laughs> and I just, it was like a nightmare of just yeah. trying to shut down her identity when she died. And I was just like, get me the fuck out of Florida. Like, just get me out. And I was trying, I cleaned up as fast as I could. Like I, I think I did it in like six weeks. Cause I was just like, I hate this state. <laughs> no offense, Floridians. It was like <laughs> so racist. I was like, this is disgust. And now it's like, I can't even talk about it. Like, it's just horrifying what's happening in Florida. But um, yeah. And so I, uh, I came back to San Francisco and I was, um, I was just deep in grief and I just was, it just stopped. It stopped my whole identity search, my whole, like, you know, cause I was like, I'm an orphan. Yeah, <laughs> like, right. I like, and so it was really like, really like I started to finally deal with what does abandonment mean? And what is like, Oh my, I have the primal wound and I have the, you know, like the, the birth mother shit that I've never dealt with. And now it's like, I don't have a family. Like, I don't, I don't have a family anymore. And so I just, and I'm like, I'm an adult, so I guess it's okay. But like, cause my worst fear growing up when you have a single parent and no siblings, it's like the worst, my worst fear was that she would die. Mm -hmm. Cause I was like, I don't want to be an orphan, Annie. I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to do any of those, you know, situations where I have to be readopted or like find a, when you're a kid. So I was like, please just don't die when I'm a kid and like once I'm graduated from college and it, you know, you know, if that needs to happen, you know, but when it happens, if you it know, needs to happen. you yeah, it, forever, it's not, I'm okay you, now. Like I'm, a, I'm an like independent you to, yeah. adult, you know? So, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I just, it, it, it took a long time. Like I was very, um, I was fucked up. Like I was really fucked up for a couple years. Yeah. And, um, 
And I was, I mean, I was with my husband now and we, we, we were only, we were a new, I mean, so I found out my mom had cancer in 2004. I went back to San Francisco and I was like, I want to date and I just want to figure out what the city's about because everyone talks about how great it is and how so much great food. And I was like, I've, I've just been working my ass off trying to prove like you did the right thing to hire me sight unseen, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I just, I was like, I just want to casually date cause I want to get free, free dinners. And, <laughs> <laughs> and that's all I was like, I don't want to fall in love. I don't need that. I just want to experience the city and fall in love with the city. And, um, and then I met Albert and, um, and I was very upfront. I was like, so my mom has cancer. I just found that out. She lied to me. I'm a Korean adoptee. I'm in a really bad place. But you want to go on a second date? <laughs> yeah. And he was, like, but yeah, I could do dinner. Yeah, I could do dinner. You know. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, so he, so we were together. Um, I think we were together ten months when she died, and he was great the whole time. And he, he was. I mean, his. Californians are very chill. So he's in, he's just very like easygoing and like, it's a cool, you know, and I, and he was like, you want to move in together? And I was like, no, no, I, I have rules. I and I'm dinner. from the That's East coast. Yeah, yeah. You know, we are not doing, I'm not doing that casual, like whatever these Californians did. No, no, no. And then when my mom died and I came back, I was like, let's move in together. Cause I'm like, no one is leaving me. Like I was very much like, this is, I, absolutely not. No one. I need an insurance policy. I was like, sh sh you want to get married? And he was like, absolutely not. And I was like, <laughs> he was like, that's grief. And I was, was like, like, okay, no, no, just, no, 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 just, just want to move in together. <laughs> so I was like, okay, no, okay, fine. We don't have to get married. But, um, so yeah, we, 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 um, we moved in together and then I met his family. So I met his family after my mom died, like literally two months after she died. And that's when, um, you know, his, his family, um, like his parents basically did not say anything about my mom's death. Mm. And I, mm. I don't know. I mean, this is, this was in 2005 and this is the culture of, around grief is so different now. Yeah. Yeah, it's sure. very it's I mean, it's just like everyone's coming out with a memoir about grief. It's just like podcasts. Like there's grief podcasts. It's just like, it's like grief heavy. And back then it was just really taboo. Like still people yeah. did not talk about it. And I didn't know because, again, a lot of stuff about Chinese culture was not explained to me. So I didn't know that it wasn't really cool to say anything like you just don't really say anything. So I was just waiting like. Yeah, I'm, I'm, you want to, could you, could you send a condolence my way? Like, I'm sorry for your loss. Could we just address it? Like, I'm just like, let's address it and then we can move on and I'll eat dim sum with you. Like, could we address it? And there was never, there was just a week with his family of no talking about my mom. And I was like, back then I was really like, everyone should be asking me how I'm doing because I'm not doing well. <laughs> you know? and I was just like, yeah. I want, I want people to know I'm, my world is over. And like, yeah. I, it was this weird, like everyone's normal, you know, everyone is really fine and I'm not, you know? Um, so yeah, that was, that was a hard, that was a hard couple years. I didn't, I don't know if I answered your question was, 
<laughs> I think you did. I think did, you did okay. very well. And I, I just want to say I really appreciate all, everything that you shared there, particularly not only in your own story, but in, in this particular story and the answer to that question. And I'm pick, I picked up on a lot of different things and some, some of the things that are really standing out to me. You know, I think for adoptees, I think especially because I heard you describe it as, you know, what you would consider a positive adoption experience for the most part. And I would consider mine the same way. Looking back, you can us, you can identify a lot of the traumas and a lot of the ways it was harmful. But in the moment, you know, it's like it seems like everything's fine. Like you're just talking about, you know, we just, everybody acts like it's fine. So it's fine. Um, I think that it's really interesting the ways our adoptive parents and parents in general, maybe might go about trying to protect us that are very strange when you look back on it and can, and also very harmful. You know, like you said, you're like, you were, you found out that you're about your mom's illness and, and post Korea and like you were going through it then, you know, you were going through the identity stuff. You were trying to work through that and can't speak for your mom. Didn't know your mom. Um, to me, it sounds like it's almost like there was probably this thing of like, oh, I got to withhold this information because I want to protect you in this strange roundabout way. And at the end of the day, I agree. You know, if you withhold something like that, it's really it's that's a problem. Like, that's really, really harmful. And everything that you're feeling, I think, is totally valid. I would be pissed off if my mom withheld that information from me. At the same token, I could 100 percent see her not telling me that information particularly right now when I'm going through it, like I'm starting my therapy journey, like doing all this identity stuff. I could see her, be, I could see her saying, well, I was just wanted to protect you. You have a lot on your plate. Like, I don't want to put this on you. So that just made me think of that because I'm really thinking about the, the journey with my family and it's different than yours. Like, uh, like my, my experience is a lot different than your lived experience. But I think that's just something that stood out to me is just like the ways that our, especially our adoptive parents feel like that kind of that white savior aspect almost like we have to do go overcompensate to protect our children, you know, because we feel like this is the right way to do it. We don't know any other way. And so I think the other thing that I think about too, especially in death and in grief is this idea of second rejections. And like at the end of the day, like when I talk, when we talk about, amplifying the negative experiences that adoptees feel. It's like those people, we don't want to feel those things. We don't want to have this strained relationship with our adoptive families because we don't want to go through rejection again. Who does? Who would want to go through that a second time? And I feel like with the withholding of that information is kind of like that. Like you said, you know, it feels like, especially being an only child, like you are on an island. And you have to grow up real fast in that situation and figure out the car title stuff like the car title thing. It's wild. And then you got to do a whole bunch of stuff with that. So I can totally understand that frustration there and that feeling of almost being rejected again, even though it's like everything's out of your control. But that's the whole point of adoption is like we don't have any control or say over it. And that's what we struggle with our whole lives. And I think all of that stuff is so, so heavy. And I commend you for even being able to share it with us now and giving us the end to it, because I think that's, you know, I can hear and feel the the processing, the pain and the and the and the struggle that you still have with that and that you, I think, rightfully should. Like, I would definitely still be struggling with it. I'm still struggling with grief and death in my own family from a year ago that I've just been thinking about uh, in therapy recently. And I'm just like, oh, shit, I still got some stuff I got to work on. Um, and I think all that heaviness can really inform what we do. I think as adoptees, especially, I find a lot of us find ourselves in creative pursuits in some way. 
Yours has obviously been writing. And so I was wondering how all of those things started to inform and influence and affect the way that you were writing at that time. Were you doing what you were doing now then, or did it start to really push you in the direction of one, writing in the way that you do now, but two, really being able to button down and tell your own story in a, in a different way than you did when you were like starting in script writing and then moving out for the film festival and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I feel like my writing, um, my writing has grown up with me. So when I was, I mean, I knew I wanted to be a writer since I was eight years old. Like I was just one of those kids who was like, I don't, I'm not good at anything. I mean, I can't do art. I can't really dance. I love to dance, but I can't, um, I can't sing. I can't, you know, I can't cook. I can't do much, but I can write and I loved it. And I, um, so I, I mean, I, I, I went through college. I took as many creative writing classes as I could. Um, and I remember my first, uh, fiction class, um, you know, you have to write a story and I, I didn't know anything about memoir back then. There was creative nonfiction was not really um, a thing. And so it was just fiction. So I was just like, well, there's this Korean adoptee who um, (laughs) grew up in New Jersey and um, she had two best friends and then they went to college. It was sad. And so my, my professor was like, yeah, what this, what if you wrote it from your, from the adopted parents, the mother's point of view, because Um, this character had a single mom. Mm. (laughs) So it was me, you know. (laughs) And so so I was loyal. All of it's about me. And so fiction is really true. And so um, I did, and I didn't, at the time, it's like crazy now that I think about this advice, but that that perspective actually was really helpful. And so I wrote this this short story about... um, adoptive mother having to say goodbye to her, her daughter going off to college. And so, and, um, I'm still Facebook friends with that professor. It's kind of crazy. Um, but anyway, um, and so I, um, that I did that in my freshman year. And then I, when I transferred to NYU, I got really into film, like heavy, like I just went down this hole of, um, a detour, I, I feel like. And so I didn't write at all. Um, I mean, I tried script writing, but, um, I, it was a, it was a 10 year detour. Like I just kind of gave it up. I was like, I guess I'm in film. I guess this is my life. Like this is, I'm going this direction. This is a career I'm going towards. And then, um, my mom died and I was just sort of like the time she had cancer, I couldn't write. I couldn't do anything. I was like, I was playing solitaire on the computer or her PC, like mm-hmm. her dial of PC. And I just, Um, I was like, I don't know what's wrong with me, but I can't write. And, um, obviously I didn't want to deal with what was happening because when you write, you're dealing with like, you're really starting to process it. So I, um, I, a year after she died, um, I, I took a, a, the, the, the method is called Amherst writers and artists method. I took this workshop in San Francisco and it was all positive, um, feedback. Um, and like, you basically write to a prompt and then you read it aloud. And I just Mm. was like petrified of public speaking and reading. And I was just like, Oh hell, Oh hell no. And, um, but you had to, that was what it was. And so I basically did this workshop for a year 
after a year after my mom died for a year. And I just cried every single time I wrote. <laughs> I read all, all my writing was about my mom. And I just cried. And I was just like, you can call me Lynn the Weeper, or you can call me <laughs> Lynn so the Weeper. <laughs> Lynn the Weeper. I was just like, I can't. I'm just all I do is cry. I come to this workshop and I cry. And you know, my te- my professor was like, she was like really great. And so she was like, it's fine. It's great to cry. She, and I grew up like my mom was, you know, a Irish Catholic non non practicing Catholic. Um, you don't cry. Like you don't do emotion. You, you just, it was very like no tantrums. I was like, it was a very, you know, and it was, it's also the eighties and nineties. And so it's just the parenting style is very different and no emo, like no acknowledgement. There was just no, like I'm a mom now. So it's just crazy. The shit they're saying you're supposed to do. And I was like, didn't have that, did not have that growing yeah. up, <laughs> but yeah. let me acknowledge your upsetness. Okay. You know? But, um, so yeah, so after she died, I just was writing a lot and I was in this, I did that workshop for a couple years and, um, and then I was like, oh, cause so my mom was a librarian and she was, I, I, she, she knew I wanted to be a writer and she was just like, absolutely not. Like she didn't support it. Mm. She just was like, it's so, you know, ridiculous. Like she just was like, it's a ridiculous thought. Like, she's just like be a librarian like it's safe and I was like I love books I don't want to <laughs> shelve them I want to write them like I it is so boring like li- I look I did look I was like okay she's willing to pay for a master in library science I looked at the courses I was like falling asleep just reading the descriptions and I'm like no yeah, absolutely like, I not be on the shelves I don't want to yeah be the one absolutely not <laughs> so um yeah. And so she, I, I wanted to get an MFA. Like I was like, that was my dream. Cause I was very, I, I knew I wanted to be a writer, but I didn't have the confidence. And I was like, well, you need an MFA. Like I, I didn't know what I wanted, like if I wanted to teach, but I, I felt like that was a final degree. And I, it seemed like a dream just like to write, you know, like just mm-hmm. to write. And I didn't want literature. I didn't want any of that like bullshit. Like I was like, I don't, <laughs> I don't want to read and cri- do like liter like critiquing. Like I just right. want to write. Like I really, um, so we, my mom and I would get into fights about it. Cause she just was like, no, I'm not, you're going to pay for it yourself. If you want to get a writing degree, you're paying for that. I'm not, she was like, I will pay for something that will like have an end result. Like she was like, you want to do social work? I'll pay for that. You want to do a uh, library? You want to be a lawyer? I don't care. But a writer is not going to do it. And so when she died, <laughs> I was like, and I did actually apply uh, to uh, the MFA when I was 25. And I only applied to two schools. I applied to University of North Carolina in Cha- um, Wilmington because I was trying to repeat like my younger days but it was very white and I was just like I don't know what I'm thinking because I'm like I'm very Asian <laughs> like I I'm I can't go back like it's right. just like so I was like that might not be a great idea um and then I applied to Brooklyn College because I was I was in Queens and I, I didn't get into either and so I was just like I guess I'm not meant to go to get an MFA. And then when she, so when she died and then I had that whole year of, um, um, returning back to writing, I was like, fuck it. I'm going to get an MFA. Like what is, (laughs) 
I got very like I, a lot of things are happening after her death, but I got very carpe diem and like, um, Oh yeah. Yep. You know, she, she spent <laughs> 40 years in the same career and like her highest paying salary was $60,000 when she retired. And she was the director of the library for the blind and handicapped. It was like the mm. highest you could get in a government position in the library. And it just was like, I don't want to do that. Like I, I'm not. And then she saved up, like she spent 20 years saving up for retirement and she dreamed about retiring. And then mm. she got there, she retired at 60. She, she died at 66. So she was there for five years. Yeah. And I just was like, I'm not doing that. I'm not waiting till I'm 60 to finally have fun and do my dream. So I was like, fuck it. So I went and I, I, I got an inheritance because I'm my only child. I spent it on getting an MFA. And I was just like, I really was. I was so I was like, I was such a good girl growing up. And I um, I didn't drink. I didn't do drugs. I didn't have sex. I didn't I didn't do any of that stuff. And then when she died, I was just like, I'm going to curse because <laughs> I wasn't allowed to curse when she, when I was little. So I'm like fucking, at, I was just, I was like, were you I was, good at it when you first started to curse though? Or were you like, wait, I don't know how these words work. Well, I, I, I think it was a process, but I, I, I do workshops and I curse so much and I'm like, I am so sorry. I should just preface this. If this is offensive, you might want to leave because I'm not going to stop cursing. Okay. <laughs> so, and, and when you're a writer and you're trying to write and you're trying to find your voice, you need a curse. And especially when you become a mom, you need to curse. Like I'm just like that. I was like, oh, when I become a mom, I'll be like, I'll try to clean up and like, you know, I don't want to damage. And I'm, fuck that. Like, there, you need a curse to survive. Like, it's just. So anyway, I went through a whole rebellious, crazy thing. That after makes sense she though, died. because it sounds like to me, like I mean, because I, I totally know what you mean. Fortunately, not like a ton of like bad uh, or hard life things have happened, but I've just had to do a bunch of like super boring adult stuff. And all of the like more experienced adults are like, "Well, why haven't you? Why haven't you done this? Why haven't you done this? Why haven't you done this?" I'm like, I don't know. I'm like literally learning the language to do the thing, and then also doing the thing for the first time, which I think is really difficult, right? Whether it's like. Uh, yeah, whether it's health insurance or car titles or like property tax, you know, any of that kind of like just super boring stuff. And it sounds like like as I'm hearing your story, you know, like your your mom passes away and you're in your 20s finding yourself doing that whole thing. And then you find out your mom has cancer. You take over. You like go to Florida, take care of all the stuff. Right. So you're also for the first time, maybe just like learning about like car titles and like all the all the boring ass government legal stuff. And then she passes away and you, you realize you're like, actually, I need to, I've, I, for lack of better words, I've put my life on pause doing this career that I like kind of care about maybe, but it's not writing and, and all these things. Right. And so, so then you find yourself in, in this writing position. And then I love that you say like, oh yeah, the first thing I did was started cursing. Cause I was like the same way. Like for me, once I like left the church world, I was like, the first thing I started doing was like, I can swear. I'm not going to just like immediately <laughs> get like smited by a, a heavenly bolt of lightning as soon as I say one bad word. So I can swear and it's totally fine. And I, I think it's interesting because, so you're, you're a writer and I, and I want to talk to you about Lost Lit, but 
especially for adoptees, one of the things that we found on the show is it's really hard for adoptees to find language, either to describe their experiences or to, to describe what they want. And I wonder like how much of that, especially like for you doing writing workshops, if, if you have somebody come in and they're like, oh no, I don't say that. Or like, oh, I don't talk about this thing or that thing or whatever. And you're like, well, but then how could you truly explore language? How could you ever hope to gain true fluency if you're not, if you're gatekeeping yourself from being able to say certain words or broach certain topics or whatever, even if you are bad at the beginning and you have to like find your feet, you like find your footing, but it's like, you have to talk about these things in order to discover the language and discover like new ways of expressing yourself and, and all of that. So I, um, yeah, I, I love being able to hear your backstory and into, into maybe more present day. Um, and I would love for you to tell me about Lost Lit, what, what that is, how it got started, um, and, and what, what you hope it to be. Yeah, so I, um, like I was saying, I I took this Amherst Writers and Artists Method uh, after my mom died, and I I really just wrote about her, and I wrote about grief for, for years, and I was like, one day I would like to do this. Like, I want to I wanted do, I want to call it grief writing. Like, I want to write about grief, because it literally saved me. Like, I don't, I don't think... I would be, I mean, I still cry, obviously. I mean, it's eight, literally 18 years ago. It seems so, I'm like. I mean, you're it, human. It, you're it, it didn't happen. Feelings. It didn't just happen. <laughs> it wasn't even three years ago. This is 18 years ago my mom died. But I just still easily cry. So um, I was like, one day I would like to do that. I want to I help people. I, I felt like it helped me and I want to help people uh, through their grief, through, through writing. And um, I... But I was, I, I, like I said in the forum and ever, I keep repeating, like, I was really scared of public speaking. And I was just like, I mean, re even reading it aloud, um, I mean, I was in that workshop and I just, I, I don't know. I think it was different because like you wrote it and mm. it's like, you're not, you don't have to come up. It's not like um, spontaneous. It's like you wrote it. So you're mm. just reading what you wrote. So it did, it, that for some reason didn't trigger my 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 fear of public speaking but i was like absolutely not i will never lead like i don't i mm. i mean i want to like i want to do these workshops but i'm like i don't know how i would because you got to talk and you, gotta, <laughs> you gotta, <laughs> i mean mouth. when you're leading a workshop you have to do everything is spontaneous like yeah. i mean other than what you're writing i mean because you write with them but it's still it's so it was like uh, i don't think i it's a pipe dream. Like, I don't know. It just went. And then, um, in 2012, uh, so my husband and I, we were in New York and uh, we were both looking for full-time jobs and it just was like not happening. And he started his business called Grumpy Bird. He found a storefront in Brooklyn and it was, uh, like we would be in debt and it just was like totally crazy. And we were, he was like, let's do it. And I was like, okay. And so we, we, before we got married, we, we went into business together at the, with the storefront and, um, there was like th five steps up and then it was like a lofted area. And I just literally, I, I'm not a vision person, even though I lived in California, you know, I was just, I was never those woo woo, you know, like, like but I literally saw a vision and I was like, I'm going to do my workshops up here. I'm going to do grief writing and I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to do it. I don't know how, but I, that I just saw it. And 
So I got certified in this AWA method and um, we opened and he was doing his art gallery, like working with local artists. And I just was working with writers and we did that for six years until the owners wanted their building back. But I was like, I was pretty, I mean, I was doing like literary events in this space. Like it was a gorgeous space. And, um, it was a lot of fun and I I was really happy and I I was able to do a grief writing workshop maybe once a year because it was so hard to fill. And I, I really was, I was like, okay, I'm going to do grief writing and I'm going to do adoption. And then, so I tried and I wasn't really in the community in New York again. So I just was like, I don't know how to find these people, but I know you're there. Like I know New York has so many and I was like, I wasn't like, it has to be adoptee. I was like, I'm open, like adoptive parents, birth parents, come on in everyone. Let, let's just talk about adoption. And I had two workshops in adoption, um, just adoption general. And that was it. That was in 2015, I think. Yeah. So I just was doing a lot of general workshops in this method, this AWA method. So, and that was, that was in 2012. And then, and then once we moved, I found another space and then the pandemic happened and I went on hiatus for like two years. And then now I'm in a new space. Um, I've been there for a year now. So, so, so with Lost Lit, this is something that you started, um, and you've also been involved in a retreat as well that you said that you, I know you wanted to talk about. Um, but I also noticed on your profile for Lost Lit, you talk about being lost and found and how it's like a cycle of uh, of life, that it's just an ongoing thing and that you've gone through different stages of being lost and found, um, being found in, in Brooklyn, um, and you're starting this website, um, you've lost, you know, um, you know, you've moved around, so you were in San Francisco and you've moved back to, to New York. Um, so you, you know, you've had some changes and things like that. What kinds of things have you done and would you recommend, I guess, for listeners and stuff on, on helping in those moments of being lost? Is it, is it writing? Is it, um, you know, looking into workshops, like the things that you provide? Um, yeah, I think lost is like, I, I almost feel like that's, if I had to narrow down an identity, that would be me. <laughs> just mm. sort of like I own lost and I I've written about the idea of loss so much um and I I feel like it's evolved to like I feel actually confident in being lost like it's no longer this scary um like oh shit what's gonna happen kind of like nervousness it's just like I'm good actually I'm not I'm not and maybe so maybe it's not called lost anymore so I don't know but um I I feel like just being called lost lit. Um, I attract, I basically attracted everyone's lost in New York. (laughs) (laughs) So it's a very, like, everyone's like, yeah, I'm pretty lost. And I'm like, yes, yes, we all are. Yes. Welcome to the club. Any, any topic, any, you're lost in your family, you're lost, you know, in your career, you're lost in relationships. You're lost in your identity. It's all, it's all lost. You know, we're all lost. We're all searching for something. And, um, and I, I, I feel like loss is almost like lost is obviously the, the past tense of loss. And I feel like we are all in the process of loss. And so that's also tied to grief. And like, we are all grieving. I don't care if you're a Korean adoptee or not. Like if you're human, 
you're grieving because there is always loss happening at every, like every second. I mean, just the pandemic alone, it's like the whole thing, the whole fucking thing was about loss. And so, um, yeah, I guess I, I just, I feel like with my workshops, I'm, it's a container. Like, I guess I think of it as a container, like, um, because the, that feeling of lost and loss is so scary and so uh, uncontrollable. Like you just feel so out of control. And so writing for me is like, I feel, I truly believe this. I mean, this might sound like, uh, you know, that's what teachers say, but I feel like we're all writers because we're all human and we're all living a story. And so literally everything is about narrative and framing and, and structure and, containers. And so I, my workshops are just basically, I, I wanted, it's a safe space. It's created like a living room. There's always snacks and hot tea. It's supposed to feel like this hug that you didn't get from whoever you should have gotten it from, <laughs> you know, growing up and you just get the shit out. Like everyone has something that they just need to get out. And so my workshops are, that's it. That's, there's, there's no talk about publication. There's nothing about like pressure. It's literally just, I, I don't want to say throw it up, but it is a, just like, um, not expulsion either because that sounds too strong, yeah. but you know what I mean? But like, I think uh, it is, it's cleansing, just release, I don't just get it out release, release, yeah. release. Yeah. Catharsis. Yeah. yeah. Catharsis. Well, I, I think yeah. especially like if you have all these feelings and you're staring at the blank page and if you get too in your head about it, I certainly felt this way whenever I try to write. I'm just like, am I going to – like I get too far ahead. I get too wordsmithy. And at the very beginning, I'm like, but I just got to – I got to have something to smith. You know, I got to have like something to to hone and think about. And especially I love that you talk about like having – like being container, but the idea of like – I think in – like as I understood it, like a narrative form and, and thinking about like whatever the thing is, whatever your sense of loss is – like thinking about it in narrative form then maybe helps give you some framework to understand whether or not a person has to then go and, and update that understanding later down the line. Um, you know, it, it just depends on, on their life. But I think if you have feelings that just feel like this massive boulder of like, I don't know, but just like a large rock on your chest that if you are able to write about it and you're able to give narrative to it and give shape to it, then it's, easier to understand, easier to manage. And I think that that's really lovely. Um, Lynn, thank you so much for coming on the show and, and for talking with us. It's been a real pleasure to have you. Will you uh, tell our audience, tell our listeners where they can find you, where they can learn more about you and your work and and, and plug anything that you would like to plug? Um, so you could go to uh, my business, uh, lostlit, L-O-S-T-L-I-T.com. Um, I, I do workshops in person now, um, in Brooklyn, but I'm, I mean, my, my long-term dream is to go to con and to do a workshop there, to go to Ica and do a workshop there. It's just, I had kids and they, they mess everything up. So it, like, I've just been, <laughs> been waiting for them to grow up so I can <laughs> have Damn my kids. life back. Yeah. There's kids. So my, my oldest is about to show her birthday is, uh, this Tuesday, uh, August 22nd. So she's going to be seven. And then I have a five and a half year old. So I, um, 
they're getting there. Like they're finally mm-hmm. in school and I'm, I'm getting back to my life. Free kids. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so, and my, my writer website is lynnconnor.com. Um, yeah, I'm just, I'm just doing a lot of writing of uh, now, now that I'm he, where I am about being a crane adoptee and about grief and about, yeah, all that. Yeah. hundred uh, percent. And you also have a retreat as well. Yeah. So my, my two friends, uh, Korean adoptee, Heather, um, and, uh, an Indonesian adoptee, uh, Anna, um, the three of us, uh, we're, we're all, so I do my writing workshops and Heather is a, um, Reiki healer. And then Anna is a body mind movement, a dancer, um, artist. And so we were, we got together and we were like, let's just do a retreat. And so, because there's, there's a lot of adopt, you know, I know I, I'm very aware of con and I've not actually never gone because there always is a life crisis happening when I plan to go. I literally was, uh, so I, back when my mom got cancer, but then also when I was pregnant with my first kid in 2016, I was supposed to be on a panel and then I was, you know, she was due in August and con was in July. And I was just like, you know, in February, when we did the proposal, it sounded like a good idea. But then when I was, it was my first baby and I was just like, hell no, I'm not going anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what's happening. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not traveling. So I canceled. So I haven't gone. Um, but there, I, I, I mean, I've uh, in my twenties, I did a lot. I was part of Pact. Uh, they're still in a, uh, they, they're a transracial adoption camp in um, the Bay Area in San Francisco, and I, I was very active with them. And I've been on many panels talking to adoptive parents, and um, a lot of, I feel like a lot of the conferences are very, very talky. You know, obviously panels and like let's all, you know, I mean podcasts, very talky. And, um, and it was very social worker heavy. Like I felt like everyone had a PhD or was researching or was, uh, presenting with like a PowerPoint or something. And I was like, yeah, I, I don't want to do any of that. (laughs) I mean, that's great. That's great. Um, I, I, I love everyone who is doing their, their stuff, but I, I was like, I want, I want to work. I want to retreat that is um, that honors art, like creativity and artistry and, um, and, but on the path to healing. And and I'm a very realistic, almost, uh, like, like I kind of, I, I I almost don't like the word healing because it feels too, like too spiritual. Yeah. I'm, I, yeah. So, um, but it is kind of, I don't know another word to call it, but so I'm at, like, I, I feel like there it's like my workshops are very, um, they're healing, but it's, it's very practical and very concrete. And it's they're like, like science healing, not like a spiritual healing. It's yeah. Like, it's like everyday man. It's like restoration. Yeah. 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 yeah it's not bit. yoga, but it's, yeah, yeah. you know, so, so we're doing this retreat for the first time, um, it's going to be November 11th and 12th in New York City. And so we're going to announce it soon. Um, and we're going to open registration. And it's for transracial adoptees. We decided to keep it small. And um, yeah, because it's our first one. So yeah, cool. And yeah, that's awesome. If, 
Yeah. If people wanted to sign up, where would they be able to go to get that link for registration? So um, we have, I have a website that I created. It's crazy. Um, it's adoptiehealingarts.com. Adoptiehealingarts.com. Well, right. by the time this episode comes out, I, <laughs> I bet that link will be live and we will have that link in the show notes. We'll also have okay. everything else that you share with us in the show notes, how to sign up for your workshops, how to follow you on socials, how to be just engaged with you to be able to go through that grief and that healing and restoration, restorative process together. Um, Lynn, I'm echoing KJ and, and Nathan's sentiments about you sharing your story with us. I really appreciate everything that you shared with us. Again, I really resonate with you talking about crying a lot when you're younger because like things making you cry because I'm the exact same way. So don't everybody and don't let anybody ever tell you differently. It's all good. That's what we're supposed to do. That's part of that mm-hmm. rest, rest, restorative process. Um, but again, we'll have all of those things linked in the show notes. Lynn, I know you got to jump, but we are going to take just a short break and then we're going to be right back with some sort of snack item. So I'm going to hit that thing and we'll be right back. Welcome back to the John Chi Show food time and a happy food time because the time that we are doing this is actually on Chuseok. So happy Chuseok, guys. Yay. Hooray. Yeah. Happy Chuseok. <laughs> so excited. Uh, I'm so excited that it's Chuseok. I mean, that's what we're, you're supposed to do. You're supposed to feast, right? Yeah. So, uh, so we, this is coming out after Chuseok. It was just this last weekend, but happy belated Chuseok. And also, I think Korea is just on like a five day holiday. So they're, they're just doing a whole bunch of nothing right now. Uh, but for all of you Koreans, uh, in the States, or if you're Chinese celebrating the Harvest Moon Festival, shout out to Chunga. Um, yeah. Happy, happy moon times. Uh, mm-hmm. we're jumping into, a rice cake of sorts because that's also a traditional moon time food but i don't think this has any relation besides it being a rice cake uh, <laughs> exactly i actually have some uh, moon cakes upstairs uh but they have nuts in them and so <laughs> we will not be giving those to our kids did you buy them pre-made uh, no we were gifted them so oh, nice. okay but they are pre-made yes so um i know you can get them at the stores or you can get them at bakeries and stuff but uh, I will let you know how those are. They look good, but uh, yeah, these these are interesting. I like so uh, it has the glutinous rice in it. So mochi, uh, I like mochi, um, and I, we've had a few snacks that have had mochi in it, right? So yes, this is not our first time eating a mochi. Yeah, and, of some and type. but uh, so yeah, I'm curious to see what this tastes like, just because I can just by the look of it. It's made by CW Foods, and all it says is biscuit on the front of it. Big glutinous rice. Say it says big Monica. glutinous rice manaka. Monaka. Manaka. Monaka. And that's all it says. But um, but looking at the the thing through the the snack through the package, it looks like a wafer with a red bean and then mochi on the middle. That's what it looks like. It looks so. like a like a tiny bagel. Like larger than a bagel bite, but <laughs> sure. still kind of a tiny bagel. But solid um, in the middle. The <laughs> no hole. Solid in the middle. Uh, got some the, writing on it too, which I can't. Really make oh yeah, out. it's got it a little design on it. The package was nice to open. It's like very wrapped. Yeah. So. Oh god, uh, very dry. Mm-hmm. I was not prepared. Smells like I a wafer. Expected that from the cracker. 
The wafer, yeah. It and the wafer part reminds me of those church wafers. <laughs> I like the middle. I though. didn't expect it to be filled with stuff. Where do you think the mung bean came from? What is? I didn't know there was mung bean in it. No, red bean. Oh, I kind of assumed. Bean. Yeah, okay, red bean. But yeah, was I supposed to assume that? Well, I think Nathan said it out loud. Oh, did, I did he? Say it. There's a picture. <laughs> Sorry, you don't have the picture on the package. Yeah. Mm, I do hmm. not have a picture of that. Uh, yeah, the red bean is great, but the wafer is yeah. like so dry. All right, is this expired? No. The wafer part feels like it could be expired. No, this is just how these wafers are. I've because I've had stuff like this before. Oh, wild. Uh, I even had a birthday cake with like a rice paper around it one time. And I remember crying at the birthday because I didn't <laughs> want the rice uh, paper or the edible paper or whatever it was. It does taste like around paper. The outside. Yeah, it does. It like tastes like paper. paper. But this kind of No, just like, like paper. A thicker just version. Just like paper, of that. paper. Like if I were to. If I were Stick to take an eight this, by five or eight and a half and eleven in yeah. your mouth, and you're just like, "Yeah, this is good." If I were to fold up this piece of paper next to me and put it in my mouth, it would taste it. of the same quality and consistency <laughs> as this that thing that I'm holding in my hand. Oh, you know what? Actually, the uh, the the cake, the glutinous, big glutinous biscuit time, uh, tastes <laughs> a little bit like the ice cream cone that you get at McDonald's. Oh, like I have not had an ice cream cone from McDonald's a long time. Okay, I just had okay. that last night, so it's like top of mind. But like that's kind of how it tastes, how it comes apart. And like a waffle yeah. cone, like the sugar cone, sure. whatever. So yeah. I could yeah, see like a, even just like a stale ice cream cone. I would yeah. Yeah. describe it as <laughs> such. Or paper. I'm going to go with paper or still. Or paper. Okay. Uh, well, Patrick, since you're on the paper cake, how would you rate this? Eight and a half by eleven tasting big glutinous <laughs> monaca. Uh, I'm gonna give it a Sorry, three. CW. I'm gonna give the paper outside a one, but I'm gonna give <laughs> the red bean inside a five. I thought that was very very good. Yeah, so I agree. I, it balances yeah. it out to right down the middle a three. <laughs> okay, interesting. I'll go, I'll go a little higher because I it's exactly what I expected on the of uh, the papery uh, outsidey rice cracker part. I expected it to taste like that. However, I was surprised that the inside, it was actually better than I expected um, because I typically don't like some of the red bean uh, snacks out there. Mm. I, I mean, maybe it's too, I don't know, the the texture is too grainy. It's too beany. This one was actually more sweet than I expected um, and kind of like a jelly-filled bean mochi center. So I actually like that a lot better. And so I'm going to give it a 3.5. I feel the same about red bean stuff. Which is why I gave it a five, because I liked it a lot more than I normally yeah. do. Uh, yeah, I also feel the same about red bean stuff. Um, then and, and thought that this was good. The the outside took me by surprise, but once I kind of got into it, I was like, okay, I know, I know what I'm getting into. Um, so I'm gonna give it a four. Uh, I think the flavor overall is good, and actually the. The outside is so dry and so crumbly <laughs> that actually I think it overall makes the red bean make more sense. Um, sure. Like it's not just like, like if you were to think like a mochi cake or something like that, like it would be so chewy. And then like the, the last thing I want to be hit by is more chewiness or more pastiness from a, a red bean filling. Uh, so I think that the the textures overall work well together. So, and because it was better than I expected, uh, yeah, I'm going to give it a four. Big rating. All right. So. Three, three, five, and four. Oh, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Three, the, the three, three, five, the three rating. and four. So averages <laughs> out to like, three, five. Wait, what? 
Yeah. That makes oh, sense. I was like, who that gave it a sense. five? I, don't, I was like, <laughs> I don't understand, but I do understand uh, now. Uh, but hey, if I had other Chusok things to give you as far as food, I would, but... Uh, I mean, this hopefully the snacks uh, will that was a good one last us a while. So, As someone who is not doing anything to celebrate this holiday, um, this was a good enough celebration for me. So thank you. <laughs> well, there you go. We did it. Uh, well, yeah. Hey, we want to thank Lynn again for coming on and sharing her story um, and talking to us. Uh, and for also being up front, being like, Hey, I don't want to do the food portion. Cause if you want to come on the show and you're like, I don't want to do the food portion, that's totally cool. Uh, it doesn't mm-hmm. like disqualify you from anything. We get that. It's not everybody's jam, but either way, it's a great <laughs> interview. So thanks for coming on. Um, if you want to support the show, you can do so, uh, at jazzyshow.com slash support. You can find us on all the social media places at Johnchi show or send us an email to Johnchi show at gmail.com. You could leave a voicemail if you're into talking to us at 972-677-8867. Uh, we still have one in the tank that we will listen to. If you just want to call and wish us like a happy juice or say what's up, uh, you know, just feel free to do that. Um, am I missing anything? We're on Rating. Facebook at Review. the after party. Oh, yeah. If you could please give us give this show a rating or review on any platform that allows you to do so, that'd be great. And that also do so in the hopes that like if you were like to tell your uh, adoptee adjacent friend, not necessarily just an adoptee, but adoption adjacent friend to listen to the show, write a review for them Mm. uh, just to be like, yeah, hey, it's a good show. You should listen to it. And maybe they shouldn't. I don't know if they shouldn't. Don't 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 leave a rating. It's fine. Uh, or do, but not for that person. Or do, but not for that. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> uh, I think that's it for the show stuff. That's I'm JJ Relke, wherever I want to be found on the internet. I'm in No Walk on Instagram, and I'm at Patrick in the World on Instagram as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Happy Chusok, belated Chusok again to Chusok all of our listeners. Um. And that is all. Until <laughs> until next week. Janchi Heyo. Heyo. Hey-o.